I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Toronto today with Ron Tite, uh, who is the author of the book uh, Everyone's an Artist, or at least they should be. Yeah. Uh, he is, uh, well, he's been called one of the most creative Canadians around. He's a content marketer. He used to be a comedian. But, I mean, you're still a comedian. I mean, you're still funny, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, your listeners may tell you otherwise. <laughs> but maybe not professionally a comedian anymore. Uh, and we're here today to talk about creativity, about content, and the future of innovation. Yeah. Uh, Ron, it's great to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. And thanks so, so much for having me. And welcome to Toronto. Well, I mean, I, I, I said before, I mean, if, Toronto is always this beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful, sunny day. It's, uh, it feels like Los Angeles. You probably have another 10 million people living here, right? Yeah. It, it, you know, Toronto is a, is a great city. It, it is incredibly diverse. You know, from from food and culture and interest, there's just, it's grown and matured as a city into um, it just has the best of of all worlds coming together in one nice chilly location. Probably with half the world's cranes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of construction. Yes, uh, yes. Your listeners can't see this, but you're wearing a hard hat as we record this. <laughs> so, so let's start with uh, this this idea uh, behind your most recent book. Uh, Everyone's an artist. Uh, why is it important for people that maybe don't think of themselves as creative to learn from creative people? What, what can business leaders learn from? Uh, from, from, from artists, essentially. Well, you know, you, your first comment there set it up, you know, that people who don't think they're artists. And the first thing that we have to, you know, dispel this myth that creative people are only the people who wear, you know, black T-shirts and have poor hygiene and, and you know, listen to indie music, you know, that we're all creative. We all were born creative. We all, as children, wanted to completely express ourselves. And slowly over time, you know, it just gets kind of beat out of us where we don't think we're worthy of being creative because we've been given this this image of what a creative person is. Right. And that, it's no longer relevant, you know, especially in business where you look at the companies that are really, really making inroads and really disrupting categories. They're not doing it because they've hired a great ad agency, but it's because they've applied it to process, because they've applied it to operations, because they've applied it to human resources. And so creative is creativity is being redefined. But there's, there's, I guess there's a difference between creativity as a posture and creativity as a process, right? Yeah, that, and that's totally fair. That's totally fair. I think when you when you look at process, which, which is why we need to look to artists, because artists do certain things that can help the rest of us out. Because it's really easy to say, you know, ah, you should be creative. And uh, it's, it's not as easy to then take that from inspiration into action. And so people are looking for a roadmap. And so I say, well, why don't you just look at the people who's, where creativity is the product. It's the thing they need to do every single day. What do they do? And do that. And I'm not saying you need to sculpt and you need to do an expressive dance. But what is the process that, that goes into them creating that work? And how can that apply to business? And what is that process? Well, there's a, there's a bunch of different stuff there. I mean, I think, you know, one, one of the things is that we constantly have to consciously reinvent ourselves. 
great artists are constantly exploring different media. They're constantly exploring different forms of expression. And we as business people don't. You know, we're really efficient at doing what we did yesterday because we know the results. We know the emotional state we can get in. And so it's really easy to just do that. We don't, we, no one looks back at our CV and go, that was his blue period. <laughs> That's right. We need blue periods. You know, yeah. we need blue periods. And, you know, we, we, we believe in this notion that, well, you got to dance with the one that brung you. And that's just not great for business these days. The speed of change is far too fast. So we need to constantly, constantly reinvent ourselves. And, and, and what are other things that artists do that you've noticed? Well, artists, you know, um, one thing is that artists are anti-establishment. A lot of great artists are anti-establishment. And they could be anti-establishment towards a political movement or socioeconomic issues or even the establishment that defines their own particular artistic form. So what is it? You know, if it's a stand-up comedian, they will say, well, what's a way of being anti-establishment in comedy? What's a way to completely break the rules to create something new and unique? And in business, when you again, when you look at all these categories, the real disruptors are the anti-establishment companies. Uber, Warby Parker, Airbnb, Dollar Shave Club. All these guys are looking at the establishment going, nope, not buying it. I'm completely changing the rules uh, in this game. And that comes with a rebel-like attitude going, you know, stick it to the man, even if you are the man, right. <laughs> you know? But so there's an element to comedy itself, which is about in, in, inverting people's viewpoints, right? There is, yeah. I mean, comedy is, is based on surprise, that, that you can set people up and you the insight that drives comedy is something that frustrates everybody or that piques the interest of everybody. And nobody says anything about it until a comedian goes up and goes, you ever notice? And everyone goes, yeah, I do notice that. Right. Well, you know what? When there's such a great example here, when when Dyson came out with the hand dryers that were actually worked, you know, for years everybody used those crappy hand dryers, and we put our hands under them, and then after a minute we went, ah, oh, well, this sucks, and we wiped them on our pants. James Dyson, being anti-establishment, said, "I know that that is an insight that drives people crazy. I'm going to fix it." That, that process is the exact same process that a comedian would have gone through to say, you ever notice when you go to blow your in these things suck and you got to wipe on your hands? You know, so a comedian takes that insight into a whole range of different material of, you know, what you do in your pants and what, what could you do with the hand dryer and our ways to solve the problem. A business person takes that same process and creates a new product to solve the problem. Although it's interesting how, I guess, Dyson's innovation went from comedy to irony when it's now actually turns out that you spread more germs around using those Dyson hand dryers, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, and that's the pivot, right? That's that's the James Dyson pivot where he'll say, oh, maybe this wasn't as we thought it was going to be and 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 he'll he'll pivot that. He's now got the hand or the hair dryer. Yes. That's, you know, the, the latest. most expensive hair dryer. Yeah, I know, for $400. <laughs> um, there's another aspect which I think is very interesting interesting about comedy in, in the sense that comedians are always having to test out the material. Um, so it's a bit like A-B testing, in, you know, in, in, uh, in, in traditional marketing or, or user testing. There, was there something that you experienced when, when you were a comedian? Yeah, there, there is. There's, you know, what we need in business is the equivalent of the open mic night. Right. The open mic night is when the risks are really low. 
you, you're going to an empty room. You've got some thoughts on paper. They're not full-fledged jokes. You've got some thoughts, and you put them into market. Well, I heard Chris Rock does this, and he, he actually is not even waiting for the audience, um, the audience to respond. He's just he's up there with a piece of paper, saying stuff out deadpan. Yep. And just going, yep, no, yep, no, yep, no. <laughs> yeah, and it feels natural to him. And then on stage, he can think of something like, oh, I'm going to extend this into this space. And, and, and he gets the reaction that maybe he wants either from himself or from the audience, but it feels right. And he knows there's something there. Right. You know, whereas in business, what we do is we go, all right, let's write the joke. And then let's test the joke on a focus group in a really unnatural setting. Um, let's get somebody who doesn't know anything about jokes uh, to comment on it. Um, and, write, and some unfunny people to write a research report. Um, yeah, exactly, right? And then they pull out all the, they strip away all the humor, and then they go, okay, take $100,000 and launch that into market, and then they're surprised when it, when it doesn't work. Great stand-up is you go in with a piece of paper, you have no idea where it's going to go, you just start working it through, and slowly over time, you end up with a great bit. Now, this is the part about stand-up. To, to not contradict but complement what you said where you can do great A-B testing um, you can test out new material see the audience reaction but what comedians really do well is once they've got a gold bit they use the gold bit over and over and over again when you have got it to the point where you have worked out every pause every head nod every comma then it's gold and you don't turn your back from gold. So it's in, in business, it's this notion that we have to constantly be exploring and testing at the same time. And we end up with something that's in the core of our initiatives that we know works really you well. You've got to double down on it. you got to double down because that's where you make your money. It's the, you've got to move it onto the assembly line because that's where you make your money. When you're really efficient, uh, both from a time perspective and from a financial perspective. And that's often people lose that insight around comedy it's not all about testing and flying by the seat of your pants the flip side is you develop gold material and you exploit the gold material at every possible chance if the audience hasn't heard it you know you're using it i also like this concept that you said that essentially what makes something funny is surprise and uh i you know i previously on this podcast interviewed a good friend of mine valerio who's a, a very famous italian industrial designer and he said the difference between italian design is it's not particularly better made than other countries but has an element of wit about it yeah. there's something about it which is unusual or unexpected and it's the surprise that makes something essentially italian yeah you know there's um, I, I, that's almost an anti-establishment thing, right? Yeah. Where because in so many places, it's a wit. Yeah, but the the rest of us, I think we try to live up to this. I don't know, the, like a stock photo version of what we think a business person should look like and sound like and act like, and we try to make it really perfect. And you know, you look at the political sphere. You know, politicians are notoriously perfect. Very scripted. What do you mean? This is Canada. You actually have a perfect <laughs> prime minister. I know. For, for now. <laughs> I mean, he actually looks like something from stock photography. <laughs> yeah. But, he, but he's a great example. You know, here's a guy who had admitted to smoking pot, you know, whereas every other politician kind of tried to, to go around. That's not Clinton admitted he smoked. He just didn't he inhale. He didn't inhale it. Right? He, 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 uh, 
he took the politician. He tried to be an honest politician, but backed out at the last second. Yeah. But when you when you look at what's happening in the U.S. now, and this, this isn't a political statement in any way, but when you look at Donald Trump and you look at you know Bernie Sanders before he bowed out, what makes those people really popular in that first moment, right? I mean, they'll we'll find out whether they have the goods or they don't. I think we all know. Well, let's not go too deep into this. <laughs> but, I don't want to lose half my audience. <laughs> no, that's right. But if you, when you talk to Trump supporters, what do they say? They say, I trust this guy because he doesn't act and sound like other comedians. Yeah, there's an authenticity about it. Yeah. And and that you can apply that, you know, him being comfortable. He's comfortable with his imperfections because we think that a sentence should sound a certain way with all the periods and all the you know punctuation in the right place. And the second somebody comes in and says, no, I'm going to say it a little bit differently, and it's what we would define as an imperfect way of doing it, then it's witty, then it's edgy, then it captures your attention, and you believe it because it's really authentic, because it's not so scripted. And, you know, I, I think in the in the business world, the, the best example of this is, you know, for years, the pre-flight safety demonstration, which was legally mandated, and incredibly important. Yeah, you know, which no one paid any attention to. Exactly. And the reason they didn't pay any attention was because it was too perfect. It was too scripted. They were too serious about it. They were, you know, And no one paid attention. The second somebody realized, oh, if we actually add a little bit of wit, if we add a little bit of creativity to this, into this very serious situation, we'll actually get people paying attention. And that's the point. What, what is it about companies that people who could be outside of the context of the company, very human, very funny, but the minute they collectively come together, they become very risk adverse and, and, and really lose a lot of that authenticity. I mean, as soon as legal and PR generally have got their fingers on something, you can be certain that any trace of humanity gets stripped out. Yeah, all those great ideas get killed in, in, in meetings. Yeah. And I think it stems from a fear of failure that people don't want to be the one that have been identified as the person that approved the risk. And that's why it's way easier to just approve what was what happened last year, because no one got fired after last year. Yeah. So we're gonna get the same results and no one's getting fired. No one, you know, there may, may be no promotions that are gonna happen, but no one's gonna get fired. When you see, I often wonder when you see a great ad campaign that, that actually gets, that go, go, you know, gets brought to life, it's because either someone hasn't interfered you know, with the creative agency or there's been a very strong creative director who's managed to persuade the client not to undermine their own uh, really their own marketing yeah I think you know the question I always ask when I see really great stuff in the market is who approved it give that person an award right. not the creative team let me find you know we all get awards and stuff but uh, more awards have to be given to the people who are bold and brave enough to make those decisions to approve it. When, you know, we talked earlier about me being at your RSCG formally and uh, under David Jones. And um, the, the New York office did the Dos Equis Most Interesting Man in the World campaign. Oh, that, that was those guys, right? Yeah. And uh, out of New York, not my yeah. office, but out of New York. And when I saw the storyboard for the very first launch spot, I called my boss in New York and said, who sold the line? And who bought the line? Because the line in that spot that I think makes the entire campaign is not stay thirsty, my friends, which is a nice button, 
The line is, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dos Equis. Because normally clients want to say, we're the only one, that we're the best choice, we're the only choice. And we want people saying, if they don't have Dos Equis, I'm not drinking anything. Well, that's right. just BS. Uh, you're actually acknowledging for the, the market you're going after, they probably weren't drinking beer before. I, I mean, it's an acknowledgement of truth, right? Exactly. Most, but they don't care, actually. And if there was a, you know, sometimes they drink beer, sometimes they drink wine, sometimes they have gin. If there's... A be- if they feel like a beer and there's a Because the starting point is that if there was the most extreme man in the world, he probably wouldn't be drinking beer. Right. I mean, I mean the, 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 it's like James Bond, you know, like yeah. you, you wouldn't expect him to order a beer. Right, exactly. But that line, you know, which was a, a, a really consistent with that character, yeah. that to me, that was the biggest and most important part of that entire campaign. It's very David Ogilvy, really. It, it is David Ogilvy. Because yeah. it kind of reminded me of. Um, you know the, the 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 old Schweppes commercials. You know where <laughs> yeah. they had that crusty old captain. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And yeah. there'd be these long form ads. You know, like where he was basically talking about his life. And, right. You know, yeah. There was, and, there, was, there was kind of a gritty authenticity to it. Yeah, and we lost some of that. You know, as as data came in and people started looking at what was driving clicks and likes and shares and and we tried to gain the system. Yeah, and gaming the system leads to. I mean, you can get whatever result you want. You want a million views? I'll buy you that. That's no problem. That's not what we should be talking about. It's kind of like in the speaking world, if somebody says standing ovation is really important. Oh, I can game though. I can game that hundred percent. You know what I do? Two minutes before I end, I get everybody up on their feet and go. We're going to do a little quick stretch break at the end, and now uh, applaud if you like this particular movie and applaud loud and applaud. And this thing, you know, there's an audience of people who are standing on their feet applauding. That's a standing ovation. That doesn't. I mean, you may check the box for the metric, but you're gaming the system. Yeah, but no, I'm using this idea of data because, in many ways, we're in an algorithmic age when it comes to marketing. Um, you know, it's not just about the way we measure marketing, the way we buy marketing with programmatic media means that even television and broadcast, it's, it's going to all change. So what is the link between data and creativity? Do you, do you think that in a time of clickback headlines, it, we're sort of as a race to the bottom about, about creative ideas? Or do you think there's a new model of creativity that we haven't sort of found yet? Well, I think... Yeah, in some ways, data could be incredibly helpful to, to, to give you some insights around what people find interesting um, and, and what is connecting with people. I just think we have to interpret the data in a way that supports great thinking. And far too often, we're looking at the, we're measuring the tactics that went into making something a success. So we're saying, oh, this got high engagement. Because we put an emoji in the status update. But what about sales? I mean, sales are sales, right? Sales are sales. And I, I would love to be held accountable for sales. I really because would. Because I agree with you. Clicks you know, on an ad don't mean anything. But They, they don't mean anything. But, but I think even if they do, we're paying far too much attention for the process of how it got in front of the person and when it was posted and what was the programmatic buy and everything. What about the thing? What about the thing that they actually watched? Like, if it's crap, it's none of that gamified stuff is going to work. And, right. you know, the, the line I'll tell people when they talk about mobile or when they talk with devices or they talk about whether it's on Snapchat or on Instagram is that it's not the thing, it's the stuff on the thing. And we don't pay enough attention to the stuff that's going into all these other places. And how do we evaluate that, though? I mean, 
in some ways it feels like the, the brand people have, have kind of they've been let off the hook for a very long time and, and and every time they've been asked to justify what they've been doing they'll, they'll bring in like a pet focus group and get some quotes but yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's always been hard I think for clients and for, for companies to really evaluate the strength of brand work it's always been that way and I want to go back to you know the '60s when people were. You want less accountability. Less accountability in some ways, because I think we need we need smart people in a room who are paid six figure salaries to sit around a boardroom table and go, I don't know, let's just let the data decide. Really, this is a million dollar meeting right now, and the people in this room can't decide what's a great idea, and. You, you don't you don't have the experience to know that this is really going to connect with your consumers. I don't think you're as good at your job as you say you are. Because right. if we're just going to turn to the data to make those creative decisions for us, what do we need you for? Like, what do we need Canadian marketers for? What do we need? We'll just put everybody in one head office and have them decide. So I think we've, we've been far too dependent on having the data make decisions for us. And to do that, because of that, we're copping out. So where would you draw the line? Because I think this is an interesting area now that we have so much marketing automation. People are trying to work out what actually is a rock star in the marketing world now. Because clearly there's a bunch of stuff that can be automated and should be automated. Yep. And there's a bunch of stuff which data will give us good decisions on. Totally. So what are the human parts of judgment which you cannot automate? Uh, I think the creative generation and exploration is really tough to, to automate. I mean, what is the story and what is the casting and, and what, or what is the writing or, or, or what, is the, what is the gift? What are the things that we're, we're putting out into market? Now, where it goes and how much we pay and when it gets optimized and when it gets shelved and something else gets put in place, yeah, that can all be automated in record time, actually. Right. Um, but you can't you can't hitch them too closely together because otherwise you end up with the sort of the buzzfeedification of of stories, right? That's right. When when Everything we're all writing yeah, and <laughs> we're all writing headlines that say you're never going to believe what happens next. Yeah, um, especially number seven on the list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The listicle thing was, you know, in some ways those are really nice snackable pieces of content. I don't think that's going to really fundamentally change anybody's business. I think they may drive a little bit of engagement, but if the 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 thing that informs the list, that insight or that higher order brand belief that where we stand for something greater does isn't compelling enough. Just writing, you know, seven things that Canadians do on Thanksgiving weekend isn't gonna isn't gonna isn't gonna cut it. You you obviously have a content company and um, how have you noticed that how is content changing in terms of you know what's important. I mean, I don't think it's a controversial idea now that people realize in this age where we have such fragmented media uh, and, and such divided attention that the only way to cut through is to come up with compelling stories. But where do you start if you're trying to develop a strategy as a brand about what your story should be? Well, I think you know you have to. The place to start is what do you believe. So we have to elevate the conversation out of you know profit and product and into purpose. Then what do you stand for? You just have to stand for something greater. Because the you know, the expression that I'll tell people is, you know, the consumer is exhausted from getting pitch slapped. Everybody has a pitch, everybody has a promo, everybody's got an offer, everybody thinks their product or service is the best thing from the history of the world. 
And so to cut through that noise, you have to elevate the conversation to something that people actually care about. And that doesn't mean a CSR, you know, corporate yeah. social responsibility, but it really does have to stand for something greater. Once you get, once you got to there, well, now you've got something to talk about. Now you've got interesting, compelling stories that can tie back or can, or can be linked together through one common thread, opposed to just coming out with the speeds and feeds or features for your product. Because that stuff is getting lost. And we'll ask clients, just finish the statement. We believe that. What? Like, what do you believe? And, and sometimes they have great difficulty in finishing well, that, that statement. That's not easy. Because I was just thinking, if you're not going to save dolphins or do something that's ob obviously that people would care about, how do you figure out what actually people are interested in or that would actually possibly matter to their lives? Well, I think Especially if you do something fairly banal, like, you know, make dishwashing, you know, liquid or... Yeah, and it can get a bit a little bit ridiculous in that CPG zone where we're, you know, every dish soap has a Facebook page and now I'm following them on Instagram. Like, why am I following you yeah. on Instagram? But, you know, when you look, the, you know, if we look at what Red Bull has done in the content space, which is really, I think, the, the, the one that has really done a remarkable job with it. Well, Red Bull went out and said, we believe, and this is my words, not theirs, right, right. but we believe that people should step outside their comfort zone and live life on the edge. Okay, now support that statement. Well, one, of course they do with great content where, we, where they showcase people doing that to inspire the rest of us. But what's really important with it is they're just not doing that because there's a market for it or that they've dissected the, you know, the opportunity. It's strategically relevant to them being a caffeinated beverage. Right. And so the leap has to be a strategic leap. And when if we try to be something that we're not or we believe in something that has no link to the product whatsoever, then there's a complete disconnect and it's not going to be successful. Yeah. So you have to be strategic in that in that brand belief. And they've done that really, really well. And um, so it doesn't have to be that you're saving dolphins. Um, but there but, has to be a link. If you're a sedative and telling people to live life on the edge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, there has to be that link. And then once you've got that, then it's a kind of a creative strategic planning exercise. Like, all right, how do we support that notion? So if we think that people should live life on the edge, then is it a podcast about that? Do we highlight videos? Is it events? Is it, is it gifts? Is it, you know, an Instagram feed? What is it? And what's going to win the battle for time? That's what it comes down to. Are you winning time or are you not? And if you're what, not... What do you mean by the battle for time? Well, you know, people used to vote with their wallets. And now they vote with their time. So if I... To, to get my attention as a consumer, then you're not competing. If you're a financial services company and you want my attention to tell me that you've got a great new credit card with only 16% interest, you got to cut through. And you're not competing against other FIs and other credit cards. You're actually competing against my love and my passion, which is in this case, baseball. Yeah. So because I now have baseball, because the low cost of production and the massive distribu distribution available, I can, you know, I can make my own, you know, baseball jerseys and sell them on Etsy. And I can watch videos of highlights of the cows come home and I can listen to podcasts about baseball and I can read. Uh, you know, um, interviews with people. I can, I can geek Basically, out. your life can be 80% baseball. 80% baseball. And sleeping and eating. Yeah, and I can do it on the john, and I can do it in my car, and I, wherever. 
And so you're an FI and you're going to try and cut through the thing that I love more than anything in the world to talk to me about credit cards? And it's not, it's not even just sheer time. It's, it's sort of um, decision uh, capacity as well. I mean, because we, we have this sort of decision fatigue now. There's only so many decisions that we are prepared to consciously make. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are some that we're just prepared to let have made for us. Yeah, exactly. And that's the other, the flip side of the time, right? I mean, either we're winning the time where we're having people pay attention to us, or we're adding value at, to make their life simpler so that they can get in and out and back to the thing they love. Right. So if I'm a financial services organization, you got to know that you're not top of my radar. You're not top of the list of things I want to spend time on. So why don't you make life really easy for me, minimize my decisions so I can get back to baseball. Which is the Dos Equis thing, right? You know, going back to that, which is like the most interesting man in the world says, you know, I don't often like to make decisions about my credit cards, but when I do, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I choose Citibank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'd love to see that extension into like, have that actor who was just retired from the campaign, you know, to just go completely. Because I think it became, it became the oldest man in the world. Yeah, 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 yes. The yes, the beard was getting a little too gray. But I'd love to see that, you know, I don't, I don't always choose credit cards, but when I do, I choose. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, if you if you look out in the next couple of years, uh, there are so many new platforms to tell stories on: virtual reality, augmented reality, mobile. Do you think that's going to bring a, a new set of storytellers who are native to those platforms, or do you think great storytellers? It doesn't really matter what platform you're using. No, I think you're going to see the continued involvement, evolution of of storytellers. You know, I, I remember I was doing a, a speaking engagement and somebody found out that I did comedy and they said, um, my daughter is a comedian. And I said, oh, that, that's nice. And so she's just kind of starting out. What do you recommend that she do to expand her comedy career? And <laughs> beyond, I, beyond the kitchen table. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I said, you know what? It's about stage time. Just get stage time, stage time, stage time. And she said... Oh, she, she's never performed in front of people. She does stuff on YouTube. <laughs> and part of me was offended that that person would label themselves a comedian. The other part of me thought, you know what? Who am I to say that that's not a valid form of expression, that YouTube isn't its own type of comedy? Now, what I think we'll see, though, is that there will be specific storytellers in that world, but the really good storytellers are the ones who can extend their stories into other places, specifically into face-to-face -face environments. That if we all need multiple revenue streams, and so you may be a killer storyteller on Snapchat, but your real opportunity, your real opportunity is outside of Snapchat. And can you take that audience into other places? And can you take that skill set into other places? I think we're gonna we're we're starting now to see where people are coming back to wanting real and authentic experiences and face-to-face -face interaction and you know the reason you two whether you like their music or not but the reason you two is as successful as they are is because they know how to be rock stars and they know that playing a live gig makes more money for them than the digital download of their album and the only way they can do that is to really understand that space so we've got this whole generation of YouTube musicians who have to start playing in front of people because that's where the money is actually made. So we're, we're going to see people who are going to develop unique and interesting forms of storytelling, 
But the really, really successful ones are the flexible ones who will be able to transport that into other places, especially in the live face-to-face environment. Ron, it's been great to meet you. It's been wonderful having you on the show. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.